Please remain standing as you are able for the reading of God's Word. The text for this morning is from Psalm 74, verses 1 through 8 and 19 through 23. I will be reading in Polish, and you will see the English translation. Dlaczego, Boże, odrzuciłeś na wieki, płoniesz gniewem przeciw owcom Twego pastwiska? Pomij na Twoją społeczność, którą dawno nabyłeś. Na pokolenie, które wziąłeś w posiadanie, na górę Syjon, gdzie założyłeś sobie siedzibę. Skieruj Twe kroki ku ruinom bez końca. Nieprzyjaciel wszystko spustoszył w świątyni. Nie wydawaj na zatracenie duszy Twej synogarlicy. O życiu Twoich ubogich nie zapominaj na wieki. Wejrzyj na Twe przymierze, bo się napełniły zakątki kraju jękiem i przemocą. Niechaj uciśniony nie wraca ze wstydem. Niech ubogi i biedny chwalą twoje, chwalą twoje imię. Powstań, o Boże. Prowadź swoją sprawę. Pamiętaj o zniewadze, którą co dnia wyrządza ci głupiec. Nie zapomnij o krzyku twoich przeciwników. Zawsze się podnosi zgiełk powstających na ciebie. This is God's word. Please be seated. Uh, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. Uh, kids through uh, pre-K can be dismissed uh, for Children's Church. And a reminder to parents to pick those kids up either right before or right after you take communion. We continue our series in Summer in the Psalms. We're going through mainly the 70 Psalms uh, this summer. 74 is what we have before us today. And then a reminder that uh, over the next uh, three months, actually, we will have some of our global missionaries coming to visit us uh, for one Sunday for each month. And so this uh, next Sunday, we have a church planner uh, and his family, the Myron family, that are planting in Ireland. And he will be coming here uh, next week to be sharing God's word. And then in August, we have a Sunday in August where we have uh, one of our partners who training Leaders International, who is uh, starting and, and uh, running a theological school in Cameroon. He'll be uh, sharing the word with us. His name is Tom Steller. And then in September, a uh, missionary named Christian Roth. He's a Swedish guy who's planting a church in Copenhagen, Denmark. He'll be with us in September to be able to share God's word. So it'll be a great opportunity for us to meet some of our global partners and to be able to uh, fellowship with them in the gospel. So something to look forward to. Let's go ahead and pray and then dive into Psalm 74. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for gathering this people. Thank you that your spirit is at work building them up, giving them the power of the resurrection that's with them and in this space right now. Help us to hear you, to what you have to say, so that we can learn how to cry out to you in the midst of uh, ruins or in a, pl a place of where it looks around and it seems that your church needs to be built up again. Uh, for all of us who have experienced that or will experience that, Lord, give us a framework, Lord, to call out to you to act. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's probably no surprise to hear a pastor say this, but I love old church buildings. But this was a love that I had way before that I was a pastor. I remember just enjoying driving past 
church buildings, whether they be rural or ones in the city. And often, like be, my family grew up going to a Lutheran church, we would have other social events, birthday parties or uh, promotion parties or whatever, something like that, that we would have at other churches. And one of the things I would do is I would love to explore those churches. Uh, I know that there's some Trinity kids when they have friends here, uh, they like to do the same thing in this building, but I would often sneak out of like the fellowship hall or the social hall where we would have these uh, events just to be able to go into the sanctuary. I always wanted to see the sanctuary and the beauty of that space. Uh, and this is way before, again, that I ever thought about being a pastor, but there might have been, sort of been some indication that I was going that way because I would always sneak behind the pulpit and then kind of act like I was a pastor behind there, even though at the time I had no desire to, to do that. Uh, I just have these memories of really being drawn to church buildings. Uh, and so then it's probably not a surprise also to hear that I'm not a fan to see uh, instances where church buildings are destroyed. I'm sad to see when a community of worship no longer gathers in these spaces. Even when they're converted into condos or office spaces, that's at least a time where the building can still exist, and maybe if revival would break out someday, we would be able to fill those spaces again. But it's especially discouraging to me when a building, a church building, is torn completely down. And I think since living in St. Paul, there are certain spaces, some blocks of our city where I remember there used to stand a church building and now there is something else. And what's lost when those buildings are destroyed is not just the beauty of the physical space, but also the history of gospel ministry that occurred there, the worship, the evangelism, the acts of service and justice, weddings, funerals, all those things are now not a part of that community and neighborhood life anymore. So love church buildings not simply because of their physical beauty, but also the beauty of the people of God who gather there. So when God's church, the people are also torn down, a ministry is torn down too, that is something for me that's also heartbreaking. And there's a lot of things that can destroy a church. I'm not, I'm not talking church buildings anymore, but the people of God. There's a lot of things that can destroy God's people. A rejection of the gospel will eventually destroy God's people. Wolves who come in to eat the sheep or the infection of our own sin from hearts that no longer repent from it. These are all things that can destroy God's church. And there's always going to be these powers that threaten to tear down the church, and that's no surprise. But what sometimes comes as a surprise, I think, in our current moment is when people who bear the name of Jesus seem to celebrate and want the destruction of God's church, that join with those who want to say good riddance to the church, and they want maybe God's church to be rejected forever. We need to turn back to Scripture to be reminded about how do God's people respond when God's church is being ruined or destroyed? How do we pray through a situation like that? How do we respond when we see God's church being destroyed or rejected? And this psalm gives us a great framework, a great prayer for how the holy people of God can respond. Let's start with verses 1 through 3, where it starts to describe the rejection that God has for his people and his church or, and, and, his, and his holy place. Look at verse 1. O God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Remember the nation you purchased long ago, the people of your inheritance whom you redeemed, Mount Zion, where you dwelt. 
Turn your steps towards these everlasting ruins. All this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary. So again, this is a heart of faith that's asking these questions, that are praying these things. And this heart of faith is saying, why, Lord, have you so obviously and decisively rejected your people? And after this question, the psalmist goes and recalls the history of God's redemption of his people when he freed his people from slavery and led them to a land where God dwelt with his people. And that is not the current situation. And the psalmist is lamenting that the place where God's fullness used to dwell, the temple, the sanctuary of God, now it's a heap of ruins. And notice the repetition in these opening verses of you and your, your pasture, you purchased, your people, you redeemed, you dwelt here. This language is recalling God's commitment to redeem a people and to dwell with them. And that's why in verse 3, the psalmist asks God to come back. Come back and check out what happened, God. Look at what state your people and your sanctuary is in. Look at how it's destroyed and ruined. And this request is not trying to debate God's justice. This is a plea for God's mercy to come back and work in God's people. So what happened? Verses 4 through 8 described what happened. Your foes, foes roared in the place where you met with us. They set up their standards as signs. They behaved like men wielding axes. They cut through thickets, a thicket of trees. They smashed all the carved paneling with their axes and hatches. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. They burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. So the space where God's people used to sing praises to the Lord was replaced with the roar, the sound of God's enemies. They replaced everything that used to point people to God, replaced those things with their own signs and their own artifacts of worship. It's like somebody coming into your house, taking down all your pictures and your art and your family photos and hanging up their own stuff. That's what happened in God's place. And it's even more destructive than that. They're described like a bunch of lumberjacks that came in and, and cut it down like it was a forest. They are described like arsonists that came into God's sacred place and burned it down. And they defiled the very name of the Lord. And not only did their actions defile God's name, but so did their hearts and their mouths when they declare, we will crush them completely. And this vivid language in the prayer expresses a desire now from God's people for God to give some indication that this isn't going to last forever, that God's people and his sacred places won't continuously be destroyed. And so the psalmist says in verses 9 through 11, we're given no signs from God. No prophets are left, and none of us knows how long this will be. How long will the enemy mock you, God? Will, you, will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. So they're looking to the Lord, but there's no sign, there's no indication that God's act of redemption is with them. There's no voice of God anymore, so they're listening for God's word, but there's no prophet speaking. That's a vivid and, and such a scary way to describe God's judgment. Part of no way that you know that you're being judged by God is that he is silent, and there's no word to hear anymore. 
Not only is God silent, but the psalmist asks God, how long are you going to allow this to happen? He gives this vivid description of God. It's like your hands are in your pocket, God. We want you to take your hands out of your garment and act, but they're just in your pocket, and you're not working, you're not acting, you seem to be just standing there. Again, this struggle comes from a place of faith. The psalmist knows that God is jealous for his name, that he loves his people, that he's committed to his work. So the longing of this psalm now is, how long, Lord, are you going to wait? Because we know that you won't wait forever. We know you're going to act eventually. We know you're going to step in and you're going to restore and renew and you're going to do what you're going to do. But our longing right now and our struggle is, it's not happening right now. We want it to happen right now. And so they get into, uh, the psalmist gets into verses 12 through 17, and they request God to rise up. Look at verses 12 through 17. But God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of the Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours, and yours also the night. You established the sun and moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth, and you made summer and winter. So we're at the point in this psalm where he says, this is what's happening to God's people and God's sacred places, but this is who God is and recalls God's character and his mighty work and brings us back to who he is and how he acts. He says that you are the God who created. You split the sea. When there's the chaos of creation, you're the God that comes in and brings order. And there's this picture of him breaking the head of a monster, which is then used to nourish his people. This is who God is. He's mighty and he's in control. He opens up the streams and dries up the rivers. He is, the, he is in control of the day, and he also owns the night. He establishes the day with sun and the night with the moon, and he sets boundaries for all of the earth and even the seasons. This is a picture of God bringing order to chaos, bringing something that looks like it's just ruined and destroyed and then making it to something that's beautiful and orderly. It's like going into a home or going into an apartment that you've rented or bought, and the place is just disgusting. The place just needs repair. And what you do when you go into that space is you clean it, and you repair it, and you restore it, and you put things in order, and you bring beauty to it. And that's the picture of God here, is he's going into a place of chaos and ruin and disorder. And what the psalmist is, re is recalling is in creation, when you did that, you brought beauty and flourishing and order and restoration when you act, God. That's what you do. That's who you are. This is also a way that uh, the New Testament writers talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I have specifically Ephesians 2, 1 through 6 in mind, where it describes the ruin of humanity, the destruction of humanity, that humanity is dead in our transgressions and sin, and we lived in those dead ways and the ways of the world. The powers of evil bring chaos and destruction, and that same power at work is, in our, is at work in our disobedience as we gratify the cravings of our sin nature by following its desires through their logical end. And that's the description that Ephesians 2 opens with. It's a description of sin and chaos and ruin 
But then we get to verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we are dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Our own sin and the powers of evil and death are destroying us, but God's great love and mercy came to those ruins. He made the dead come alive by the saving power of his grace. He raised up those that have been ruined by dead faith through the power of Christ's resurrection, where now we have living faith in Christ and we are united with him. So if you know God has the power to do these things in the gospel of Jesus Christ, how do you pray when you see destruction and ruin of God's people in his church? Well, what you do is you make requests for God to do something, to act. And that's what the psalm does in verses 18 through 23 as it ends. The psalmist says, Remember how the enemy has mocked you, Lord, how foolish people have reviled your name. Do not hand over the life of your dove to wild beasts. Do not forget the lives of your afflicted people. Have regard for your covenant, because haunts of violence fill the dark places of the land. Do not let the oppressed retreat in disgrace. May the poor and needy praise your name. Rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. Do not ignore the clamor of your adversaries the uproar of your enemies which rises continuously. So the psalmist calls on God to act. He says, rise up, Lord, defend, remember, Lord. And then there's all the do not request, do not hand over, Lord, do not forget, do not ignore. This is the longing of the heart of faith when it sees God's people and God's places destroyed. It's in the midst of destruction and the ruins we need God to rise up and to restore and to build up. It's in the midst of chaos that we need God to bring order and to make peace. It's in the midst of a powerful foe that we need God to remember his promises and defeat his enemy and to redeem his people. This happens again, the destruction of God's temple, but also the restoration of it in the Gospel of John. But it's a different type of temple. The story in the Gospel of John chapter 2 is a story when Jesus goes to Jerusalem during a religious holiday, and he enters the temple courts. And he sees in that place of worship, not a place of worship, where God's free grace is given and received, but rather he sees a space that is being used for selling and exchanging money. It's a place of prayer that has been turned into a shopping mall. And Jesus sees this, and he responds by driving out the chaos and by cleansing the temple. And why did he do this? Well, his disciples tell us. Verse 17 of John 2 says, His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And that is what Jesus is jealous for. The cleansing of God's people and his places. And how do the religious leaders respond to this? We'll look at verses 18 through 22. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you give that t- to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will rise it, raise it again in three days. They replied, yeah, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. 
After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Here we are reminded that God's true and better temple is Jesus Christ. And this is the temple that was destroyed in crucifixion. God's enemy destroyed this temple, and the Lord took the sins of his people on his shoulders. And God's Son, the holy and true temple of God, is destroyed and laid in a tomb. But what happens? In three days, he rises again from the dead, where now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God is also raising up a people for himself, where his presence is poured out on us who believe, and we now become God's holy temple. And the reality in our day, it continues to be that both sin and evil and God's enemies are going to seek and destroy God's holy place and people. But we have time after time again that we see when that happens, the heart of God's people don't join the chorus of the world and say, good riddance, the church should always be rejected. May it it always just burn in ruins. No, the heart of us, because we know the power of God, is like, Lord, don't reject the church forever. Don't reject your temple forever, but raise up your people through the power of the resurrection because your desire is not that the church and your people and your place would be destroyed, but that it would be resurrected, that it would raise again, that it would be restored and forgiven and renewed. And so we join now with the psalmist and say to him, God, raise up your people and your church with the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. Lord, remember your promises. Restore and redeem your people again and again and again. And we remind ourselves of that promise each and every week when we turn to this table to celebrate the gospel in a visible